Hi, this is Brent Weeks, author of the Lightbringer series. Welcome to the Legendarium. Oh, you pulled this rug out from under my feet, but there's another rug under you, and I'm going to pull that one too. And you're like, no, that doesn't work. Like, I was not standing on two rugs. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Right. I really should have thought that metaphor through a little more. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Legendarium Podcast. Today is episode something, and I don't know when it's going to be released, so I don't have a number for you, but we're talking about Blood Mirror. This is book four in the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks. As usual, if you are not caught up, don't listen, but this one is going to be a little different than the previous three books in that we are doing a blanket spoiler uh, notice for this entire book. We are not splitting this in half like we did with the previous three books for reasons that we'll talk about probably in just a moment, but just know if you haven't read the entire book, tread lightly, be careful. We're probably going to spoil the entire thing in short order. So I am your host, Craig Hanks. And over there, I was going to nickname him after a very famous skimmer. But then I looked at Stephanie and decided that would be <laughs> indelicate. It's Ryan Bruckman. I, I, I'm okay being a mighty thruster. <laughs> <laughs> and if I were to guess, she'd either will cast herself into an adorable little bunny rabbit or a starved hyena. It's Stephanie Bruckman. Definitely the hyena. Yeah. Not a bunny rabbit. She's terrified of small woodland creatures. Are you? Yeah. Yes, sadly. Bambi must be rough for you. No, small woodland creatures. Right, the, the movie. Not the character. Oh, I was like, I don't care about deer. Deer okay. don't bother. All right. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about uh, Blood Mirror. And first of all, one thing that we didn't get to in the previous episode is the naming convention for all of these, um, all these books in the Lightbringer series and why they're all named the way that they are. And by book four, now something is becoming very apparent. And somebody pointed this out on our uh, our Discord server. Go join our Discord server. Somebody pointed it out that they're all, they all start with a B. I never even noticed it until mm -hmm. somebody said it. <laughs> Why do they all start with a B, Ryan? Because our author's name is Brent. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's good enough for me. Makes I don't, sense. I cannot think of any logistical reason inside of the storyline of the value of the, the letter B. So I'm going to go with it's Brent. And he was like, I'm going to alliterate my name into every one of these books. Do you think Do you think it was kind of accidental up, maybe like up to book three or something? It, maybe when it was still a trilogy, he had these names all all just in there. And then accidentally, he's like, oh, wow, those all start with a B. And then by the time he does four and five, he's like, well, I got to keep it going now. Yeah. I, the little I know of Brent in our, in our interaction, I, I would have zero qualms saying that, that, that that's how it went or that it was like, no, I'm literally going to put B in every single one of these. <laughs> it's his little... Homage uh, to me. Exactly. It's his uh, signature in the corner of the painting. Right? Mm -hmm. um, no, naming, naming. So we finally get in this book uh, an explicit reference to the book one title. Right, yes. the black mm -hmm. prism. We finally get that. Uh, Gavin slash Dazen has been imprisoned, and he's dealing with the consequences of his actions over the last several years. Right, fifteen years since mm -hmm. the Battle of Sundered Rock, because now I remember the name of that battle. <laughs> um, and uh, and he refers to himself in his own mind as the black prism. And so yes, it is what we kind of expected or, or suspected 
uh, and that is now explicit that he is what we are referring to when we talk about the black prism. So we got that one. The second one, the blinding knife, that's pretty clear what that's referring to. The broken eye is an interesting one because that could refer to a lot of different things. There's the order of the broken eye. There is the idea of characters who break the halo. Mm -hmm. So it could be referencing something along those lines. Uh, and then there's also Gavin getting his eye poked Losing out his eye. at the end of the book. And so, you know, that one has a lot of possible interpretations, kind of like the two towers or something. That's a little on the nose uh, for the, the book in which Gavin gets his eye get his eye burned <laughs> out to be called the broken eye. The broken eye, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then this one is called the blood, is it the blood mirror or just blood mirror? The blood mirror. Yeah, the blood mirror. Um, and why is it called that? Why, why do we have that name for this book? Do you guys remember? I don't remember. Isn't it just kind of an offhand line? Like somebody's looking at something as though. I think this is this might be something similar to the first book where we don't really find out because it makes more sense after the fifth book. Oh, okay. What the blood mirror could symbolize. Gotcha. We've, we've kind of, if you pay attention and start to put dots together a little bit with this, you notice that most of these things are tools or there's something that has to do with um, a ceremony or things like that. Like it's, you've got the blood knot, the, the, the blinding knife. I thought you said the blood knot. The blood knot. <laughs> <laughs> the blood, the blood mirror, black prism. Like they're all things that are probably part of a bigger ceremony deal. Cause that's at this point in the book, as I'm looking over those titles, like, okay, I know the order of the broken eye. You know, these are, these are all things that are, they're affecting this world. Right, quite a bit, right, right. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to bring it up. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> And now I kind of wish it had been named the Blood Nut, which is obviously <laughs> what powers the Mighty Thruster. So uh, we'll get to, we'll get to the Mighty Thruster a little bit later. Uh, this so as I kind of mentioned in the last episode, I suspect that the Blood Mirror and the Burning White are the the most hmm, divisive yeah. of the five books. I think that there were a lot of people who were big fans of the Lightbringer series who, for one reason or another, that I think we'll want to talk about, jumped ship or were really disappointed with these next two books. Some, you know, certain things about them. And I was curious how you guys feel about them. Just starting off, broad strokes, what were your impressions as you're going through this book in particular, Blood Mirror? Were you still invested in the series when you started it? Were you still invested when you finished it? Stephanie, you look very <laughs> pensive. I'm thinking, yes. Gaze, I... gaze into the blood mirror and read yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I really enjoyed these books. I thought this this one was another one that I plowed through easily. Yeah. I think it had... Because you said you had a, a t kind of a tough time with I, the last I one, I struggled right? with three. I struggled getting through three. Um, but once I got into four... I don't know if it was my mindset, my life, things just fell into place so I could get through it faster and easier. But I also think it has a lot to do with the characters were doing more. They were growing more as characters and they were they were accomplishing things to get to their end goal, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Did you feel like there was more movement? I, and I mean, literal geographic movement in this book. And was that something that threw you off in book three where things were kind of happening except for gavin i guess to a certain extent things were happening more or less everything in was, place yeah everything was surrounding of, the jaspers where a lot this of conversations one, in the last book you see a lot more of what's going on and how how the chromaria affects the entire world mm. i mean we hear about the seven satrapies 
but it's not until I think Kip really gets out and amongst the people where you learn more about what this world actually is that um, Brent's created right. and that not just the Jaspers. And Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. We've seen wherever it was that Kip grew up. What's the name of that place that everybody hates? Ty. Tyria. Tyria. Yeah, everybody hates the Tyrians. So we got a little glimpse of that at the very beginning of book one um, and kind of poke our noses in and out of Tyria you know, every once in a while. But now, like you say, we're we're actually getting out and about. And I think that's a really good point. Ryan, what about you? Kind of broad strokes. Uh, I honestly was still very invested in it. I really, I, I do enjoy this book. I understand the um, why people kind of get frustrated because in this book, um, we've had a lot of really, really enjoyable rugs pulled out from under us or, you know, plot twists and things like right. that. And it was days and all along. Yeah. And in this one, our plot twists almost put the rug back under our feet. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute. No, the, there's a few. Kind of making it into a conventional story again. Is that what you mean? Uh, not even that, but it's like, uh, it's like, oh, you pulled this rug out from under my feet, but there's another rug under you and I'm going to pull that one too. And you're like, no, that doesn't work. Like... I was not standing on two rugs. Right. I'm sorry. Right. I really should have thought that oh. metaphor through a little more. <laughs> but there's a there's a uh, an Andros quote in this book, something about when Kip is or it's uh, it's Kip thinking about how Andros taught him that the best time to shove a man is when he's already stumbling. Mm-hmm. And you know maybe that's what Brent's going for. Yeah, I've got you stumbling, and now for the the final shove, and that just didn't quite work for you. You didn't want to fall over. Yeah, well, let's beat metaphors to death. I shouldn't say that that it didn't work, that it didn't work for me, or that I didn't like it. I don't want that to be the the, the message that comes across there. I didn't understand it, uh, and I'm I'm really gonna, I'm going to dive right into the big one here. Okay, which is that uh, uh, Dazen Gavin actually did kill his brother at Sundered Rock. He was never in the prison before. Oh boy! Like, and that he's just really he's insane, and that the his use of black Luxon has wiped his memory of the the incident. I finished this book and went, wait, what, how? And I can tell you that I had conversations with other people, our listeners, um, Corey, hi, um, and a few other people who messaged me about specific, right before Burning White came out and said, how, how does this work? How is it possible that he is, you know, because I mean, the third eye saw him or we, made we, this comment. Yeah, and, we have point of views. We've got the third eye. We've all these got all things, sorts it, of stuff. It just doesn't work. And there's not enough to explain away those pieces there. Which, yeah. Coming out of book four, I'm going, you know what? That You're right. That that frustrates me because I can't, I can't connect the dots well enough to really say that this works really well, but it doesn't upset me. Like I'm not, I wasn't angry about it. I was just like, but that was like, Feel like just was, a little unsatisfied, maybe? maybe. I'm trying to look for the right word. I was like, I'm, I'm a little bit. I, I feel like that was such a good thing, and now I feel like it, it's not quite as big of a deal, that big of a reveal, like the first, when you're first reading for like right. the very first time. But on a reread, like that's gonna carry very little weight anymore. Or, or would it carry even more if you realize kind of what's going on? I, my question with that sort of thing would be more around the logistics of how these point of view chapters work because he's sitting in this blue prison staring Mm -hmm. at the dead man and all of that and there's the the escape attempt and the crawling over shards of hellstone or whatever they call it yeah Uh, so there's all these things that happen with the real gavin and you're like so is dazen so crazy that he's crawling into his own prison and going through this stuff and then going out again and 
conquering the world. Someone pointed out to me, and I can't verify this, uh, but that each of those moments, each of those point of view chapters are a time when Gavin is unconscious or asleep or something. So that he's, so he's dreaming. Of it's essentially a, a dream sequence type thing. I can't verify that even on rereads. I can't say, yeah, he was unconscious at this point. I, I've, I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah. But you, someone could easily find and say, nope, nope. And I would be like, okay, that theory's out. Yeah. I don't know. I guess uh, we'll have to go back and do a reread. Hopefully somebody will hit us up on Reddit or Discord or something and let us know um, what the uh, what the actual logistics of this were how it worked because it, it doesn't seem like one of those things i um i hope i'm not giving brent too much credit when i say that he seems like the kind of guy who would have had this all outlined before yeah you know he didn't he didn't get to a certain point and then went uh it was all a dream you know he knew mm -hmm. what was going on even if he might have toyed with some of the specifics he would have known all along that uh, that Gavin was really dead. I think I asked that question early in one of our podcasts. Was I want to know how much of this was outlined and how much of it was uh, an adjustment in the in the in the moment? Right. Um, because I vaguely remember us when we talked to him that he likes to that he does outline, but he likes to to fly by the seat of his pants. See a where bit. it goes. And th this is one of those instances where I'm like, a, even a decent outline helps clear this out. So I don't know where where he where this specific reveal sat. If it was known from the beginning or not, or if this is a right. thing, so yeah, it's an interesting question. But I, honestly, and I think that's it's that feeling that that moment engenders in readers why this book is has been a little bit more divisive. Um, is the sense that you feel kind of like maybe you've undone some work, or you're 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 tossing me around more than is necessary. Yeah, yeah. And so people have you know they might get frustrated with that. It doesn't necessarily mean that the book is bad. It just means that that experience is. Uh, it's it, just it not frustrates resonant. some yeah. people. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Because I still think the book is great. I This book, the thing that I hear most about when people talk about, you know, Blood Mirror is where I jumped off of the Lightbringer bandwagon or whatever, they say they reference the sex in this book. And that is something that I want to talk about later when we get to Kip and Tysus and their relationship and, and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. But those are probably the two big things I think you hit the nail on the head with the rug pulling. Then mm -hmm. this was just one rug too many. Yeah. <laughs> so I am not in a rug factory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's let's get to Kip and Tysis in a bit because that's kind of where the bulk of this book takes place is with their adventures in Blood Forest. And so I think we talk about them in a bit. But let's stick with Gavin a little bit. And let's see. So he's in the blue prison. He's he's actually physically now not. Not uh, just in a dream sequence. He's in the blue prison. Or is he? Is oh. he? Do we trust you at this point, Brent? <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah. Uh, and he is kind of, uh, he's got all of his wounds from the great uh, Geonosis scene from the last book, <laughs> uh, the arena scene. And uh, and now Marissi has been dumped in there with him. She's been kinda... kidnapped by yeah. Murder Sharp. So, yeah. And... Tell me a little bit more about what goes on with her. No, she hasn't been kidnapped by Tia. Yeah, by Murder Sharp and Tia, because remember Tia holds puts a noose around her neck and holds her up while Murder Sharp interrogates her. And in it's like one of the very first chapters. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I was rereading something on that um, with Tia, and it she lets Marissa go with Murder Sharp. Yeah. So she doesn't. She's not there when anyway. But so she's supposedly being assassinated, killed, Marissa, and she's kidnapped and thrown into the blue prism pretty much just to take care of Gavin to heal him in all of his wounds 
Yeah. I think, sorry, that I, that scene uh, made me very sad at the beginning when Mauricia gets kidnapped with Tia and everything. Um, I know we're talking about Gavin, and I, I'll get to that, but the whole concept of, the, of watching Tia start down her dark path by hurting our heroes, by doing what's taken that, it it breaks my heart a bit to do that. But the fact she's in there in the blue prison, the I appreciated that this was not going to be the same as the first time we were in these prisons because Gavin built these and he knows what he, he built them knowing that if he ever was in there, how he would have to get out of them. So we have these great sequences of like him smashing his face into, uh, was it the green or the blue? I don't remember. Oh yeah, first. yeah. Smash his face through it. Finding the weak he has spot. To find it, so he has to break out a dog tooth. Uh, to be able to start scrap to scrape at the one place where it's uh, it's all connected. If you can get to that, it'll all fall apart. Um, so it was like, okay, this is this isn't how are we going to escape? It's I know how to escape. It's what am I going to have to pay to do this and get uh, and and get there? Um, along with dealing with that emotional sequence of him and Mauricia having the open discussion about who she is and that and who is she? She's uh, Pula, she's the grand right? she's the granddaughter of. Uh, Orea Pula. Orea Pula, the the white, and uh, she's not a slave. She was only she was branded that way. They cut her, they clipped her ear just to help sell it. But she has done everything that she has done for him, not out of uh, a slave debt, but out of a true love for him. And so, in these final moments, the last thing that she asks, knowing that she's probably going to die, is for him to make love to her as her, not as a not as a slave, basically. Right. And I remember reading this sequ- reading the sequence and going, moral dilemma. Need to ha- how do I feel about this, <laughs> Gavin? This woman you have already been sleeping with, who has been your room slave for years, is, and has shown you nothing but love. Everything. This is clearly something you've done before, and with whom you've had sex many, many times already. Yeah, this is a new thing. Uh, wants this, and it's a last request type thing. But you also just married Karis in the last book, right? You have made promises here. Uh, if she was your room slave, it still wouldn't be an issue based on that. But because you now know that she's not a slave, it's now an issue. So what do you do, Gavin? What what choice do you have? What is your ethical decision here? Do you sleep with the woman? Do you not? And he chooses again the chivalrous hero's path and says, no, I can't. I've, I love Karis. I've, he kind of realizes that he does love her at least a little bit, but I can't do, I can't do what you want me to do here. Yeah. And I still don't know if I agree with this choice or not. Yeah, that, which is a brave thing to say, sitting on that couch with your wife. <laughs> with my wife, right I know, there. I know. I highly <laughs> doubt we're ever going to be in a position where I have a room slave and I'm locked into a... <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and put, put my money down that I'm not going to have to face this later in life and have it come bite me in the butt. <laughs> we'll see. Well, maybe, maybe you'd like that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I didn't think we were getting into fetishes here. Like. <laughs> <laughs> We've got plenty of, plenty of time for that. So um, he ultimately decides not to, and she's taken away uh, to to be killed. And yeah. that's, I mean, as far as I know, at the end of this book, that's the end of Mauricia. That is as far mm-hmm. as as far as we know. Yeah. And I, I, I wrote down in my notes for this book that I hope she's dead. I I would like her to be dead, not because I don't like her. I think she's a great character. I think uh, the the issues that she's brought up, including this one that you just mentioned, Ryan, they're interesting. Um, she has been um, she's been an, an engine for a lot of conversations and a lot of thought in these books. 
And so I like her, I like her character, and yet I hope she dies because I like what that would do for Gavin, or what that is doing to Gavin, and what it's making him consider, you know, about himself and his history, and the way he thinks about and treats other people. And I, I feel like her death would be the final, uh, the final push for him in the in his rethinking of the way that he uh, considers slaves and others, un, you know, quote unquote, underneath him. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. What? But do you guys agree? Do you want her to be alive or do you want her to be dead? I don't think I care either way. Oh yeah. That sounds bad. No, that's I don't... fine. I mean, she is, even though she is interesting, she's still a minor character. So, How did you feel about that scene? About that scene specifically with Gavin? Yeah. Considering I've thrown out my two cents on <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. Now, now I want to hear the other end Why of the Why didn't he sleep with her? Um, I guess in my mind, it's, I'm the romantic at heart. The fact that he honored his vows with Karis. And even though he has spent his entire time with Mauricia as in his mentality as a slave. I think that's kind of where we get into that talk about slavery where that's, that's just what his mentality is. She's a slave. This is what her purpose is where now that she's no longer a slave. I think that he's honoring her more by telling her no as a woman saying, I understand that this is your last request to be with me because I'm the person that you love, but that's unfair for me to do to you because you are not the person I love. And I respect you so much. It sounds corny and <laughs> cheesy when you put it that way. But so for me, it was him stepping up as, as a man and yeah. saying, these are the vows I'm going to honor and I respect you more than than the breaking of those vows. Yes. Yeah, like, no, I think I, it makes sense. Like you say, it's a little corny. You can put it in corny <laughs> ways, but yeah, no, it makes total sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, so we've we've left, what's her name, Mauricia behind for now. Gavin is stuck down there and we'll return to him, I think, a little bit later. But maybe let's talk about what else is going on in these books, okay? Mm -hmm. So Gavin is down there. The, the big other storyline is Kip. Kip and Tysis. And there, there's other stuff going on. We're going to talk about Tia and... Tia and Karis. Both Karis. Um, but maybe we go over to Kip and Tysis, talk about them, or do you guys want to stay on the Jaspers and talk about Karis and Tia first? Uh, we can... I think we can hop over and, and talk about Kip and Tysis. Uh, I, I think this is an interesting segment in the, in the book. Not really from... There is a bit of... There is character development here. I don't want to sound like I'm... Like there's not character development because Kip is growing into the leader that the people need. And he's, he's growing into that. He's already... He's stumbled into leadership in the first three books and now he is accepting leadership yes. and and consciously deciding and learning how to be a leader, right? Which is one of the reasons why in this book I came to really appreciate... I think this is the book that brought me around on Tysus uh, and his relationship because that's the one thing that she can provide for him that I don't think Tia or anyone else would have been able to even is the ability to help him understand his role as a leader um, and support him in that and see the value that he has because he still doesn't see it. I mean, he's not he's not the uh, self-deprecating, you know, almost self-destructive person that he was early in the series. He's definitely grown out of that. But in order to step into the leadership role, she helps him understand, no, you, this is your responsibility. This is your role. This is how you handle those things. 
And so their relationship in terms of getting him to where he needs to be uh, helps me appreciate her more that this is not just, this isn't just an arranged marriage. This is, there is, there is a love developing here and an appreciation for one another. Respect. I think you used that word in the last episode and I thought it was a a great one. You said you respected somebody. I thought, I thought that was perfect. And that's good here too. It's um, like all great relationships. It, it uh, includes, I don't know if based on is quite the right word, maybe it is, but it certainly includes a huge dose of respect for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, and that's really apparent. Um, I, I like this idea, actually. My brain is kind of pursuing this, where it's another avenue to talk about leadership. I mean, we talk about this with some other books all the time. I mean, Ender's Game is like the gold standard of, you know, leadership books, right? But in this one, it's, we've got, we've had three books so far of, like I said, Kip kind of, um, or you said, growing out of his self-destructive tendencies or at least self-destructive thoughts. And so in order to get to where he is now, you have to let go of those things. You have to learn to tamp down those um, negative self-thoughts. But it's not enough to do that. So you do that and that's great. You have now stopped actively tearing yourself down in your own mind. And that's great. But now he has to, uh, he can't just passively be in the leadership roles that he's found himself in. He has to actually take action, do things proactively to help his team. Um, and, uh, and that's a totally different thing. And so reading it with an eye toward what it means to be a leader and as far as being proactive, uh, I think would be an interesting way to read this book. Yeah. And one of the things that you can follow that with is it's interesting to watch him. We're introduced to a new group of people through this interaction, through his uh, development as a leader, because it's not just taking, he has, he has the mighty, he has some of the people, um, he, as time goes on, um, Antonio, Antonio, Antonius Malargos, uh, gets sent with an army to bring Tysus back. Right. And Tysus basically convinces that army with Kip's help to stay with them. And he hasn't, he has an army here. Um, so Kip is leading people, uh, but those people and the Kuni war, the, these will casters that they've found, this is not the Jaspers. This is not the people from the Chromaria who are used to the guile leadership already. This is him figuring something new out as well. And I think it's interesting and provides him with the difference that he's going to need to be able to succeed where Andros, you know, against, against or with Andros, who knows? Um, and the, and the color prints and everything like this is, he has to be different. Wait, I'm not, I'm not sure I followed you when you t- started talking about Andros. He, oh, you mean just learn to be his own type of leader? He has to be his own leader. He can't just, cause he, th- he thinks about the way his grandfather does things and the way his father would do things. And, um, but it's, it's his understanding of by working with a different group of people, it forces him automatically to shift his leadership to better understand the Kony War, for example, and yeah. the way that they view things. Because if it was if you just Chromaria based, they think will casting is evil. It's terrible. You don't even you don't even look at it because you watch Cruxer. He does not deal with these people well. Yeah, he does not think it's okay right. <laughs> at all. Um, but his ability to adjust and adapt and and learn uh, will be, I think, what helps him as a leader. In as we get into the final deals with everything to have these skills that those other people who are currently leaders don't have. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Okay, I think you got there. Yeah, you lost me for a minute, but you brought me back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephanie, did you finally like Tysus in this book? 
Yes. You did not care <laughs> for her in book three. So the more I get thinking about Tysus, I think Tysus is absolutely the perfect companion to Kip through his journey as he becomes the leader. I think she is exactly what he needs. However, I think she was poorly introduced. If, if you want as a character from the beginning, I think if you wanted, I either needed more of her other than that one little scene that to with, show with Andros that she with so the scene that she has with Kip. Oh, oh you're talking about the conversation with Kip. The conversation with Kip. I need more of that to show that this is actually her true self. Gotcha. This is the person that she she is and she wants to be, and the world that she is in forces her to do the other things, like when she's the green, when um, right. she's part of the the color. Council, yeah, whatever, whatever they called. are, and like her moment with Andros, like I didn't see enough of a growth from her, from her from point A to point B to understand that this is actually her. Sure, but I love the real her. Yeah, she is fantastic, and the way that she helps Kip grow, the way that she grows as a character is she's on the outside of the mighty, looking in for so long until the mighty finally realize that she's just as much one of them, even though she's not. Blackguard trained and everything that she's still very much part of the mighty. So, yes, now I am completely on board. I understand. I mean, everyone's rooting for Kip and Tia. <laughs> and as Kip grows into what he needs to be, Tia makes no sense. And I'm okay with that. I can accept that. Right. Because he would have, he wouldn't have become who he needed to be with Tia by his side as opposed to with Tysis by his side. Because she has the outside knowledge of what the political, like she knows how political, like the politics work. She's just bad at doing it. <laughs> so she helps Kip understand that side of things because he's he was raised in the outskirts of nowhere, no man's land. Like so, he has no idea, and he's stumbling through things. So I think she's a good companion to him. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know uh, this probably something we'll talk about. I don't know, later, now, whatever here, but we also get the struggle between Kip and Tysus as a way that helps us endear her to us as we look at Kip and their struggle to consummate their marriage. Like, that is, it is a something that we look at and we go, oh, because you look back at her past there, you know, and the use of being a beautiful woman, right. and you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's a problem here. There's, there's, a, there's an issue here, so it's not just, it's not just... Uh, the sexuality that she's utilizing here, but sunshine and yonic roses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Go look it up later. Um, do I want that in my search history? <laughs> um, but anyway, that this connection they have, it's a chance for us to look at her and go, okay, there's something that she's struggling with. There's something that he's struggling with and their relationship. And it has to build around what for most people would be a normally a, a, uni a unifying piece of their relationship that isn't there they don't have that opportunity yeah, um, yeah so well and that is the other thing that i mentioned earlier in the episode that people harp on when they talk about you know i didn't care for the blood mirror um, or a lot of people say i don't like reading brent weeks period because of his uh, use of sex in his books and this book is actually the one that i would point to and say no he nails it uh, I think he does really well in a couple of ways. Oh, I think we can talk about Tysus and Kip in just a moment, but we could also talk about his use of adolescent humor. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, we've already made mighty thruster jokes. <laughs> uh, you know, those things, I think, you know, okay, fine. If, if your taste isn't quite there, that's fine. You know, there's no arguing with taste and I'm fine with that. But I think he does really well at what would you do if you had a bunch of 18-year-old kids out, you know, fighting in a war and they and they were going through these horrific struggles together and, uh, you know, hiking through the forest or whatever, going up river on this skimmer. Of course, they would call it the Mighty Thruster and laugh about it and think it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious too, you know. Mm-hmm. I think he does really well with some of the adolescent humor when he's writing adolescence. It's one thing about the Wheel of Time, which I love. I, you know, everybody loves the Wheel of Time, right? 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 Uh, but with the Wheel of Time, you forget that these kids are kids because Robert Jordan always wrote them like they were wizened, middle-aged people. Incredibly advanced for their age. Yeah. Only a few times. I shouldn't say only a few because someone will come down really hard on me for saying that. But only a few times where their ineptitude, their naive, naivete causes them problems right yeah and, and you so you forget all the time in this one uh brent never quite lets you forget that these are a bunch of pretty young people going through this stuff and and no matter how hard your struggles get you're gonna crack fart jokes mm-hmm. you know you're gonna you're gonna call your new skimmer the mighty thruster and everybody's gonna laugh it's i i, I think he does really well uh but anyway but let's talk about the actual sex issues in this book, which again, I thought were really good. And everybody else, not everybody else, I should say a lot of other people hate. And they don't understand why it would have relevance to this story. Like, why do you feel like you need to put this in here? Yeah, why read that? Why is this here? This doesn't serve any purpose. It's just there because, you know, Brent's a pervert or, you know, he's some kind of sex-starved maniac who just, you know, he's... Which could still be true. (laughs) As far as we know. (laughs) No, but... um, But I want to point out that he nailed that stuff. Uh, There's uh, an author's note at the end of the book that I found to be completely extraneous, but that other people need to know is there and need to read uh, that author's note. So if you go to the end of the book, the final page, you know, the end, and then the next page, author's note, by this way, everybody, I put this in here, uh, the the uh, stuff about Tysus not being able to consummate their marriage, and uh, that was on purpose, and this is a real thing, and, you know, he's kind of like trying to get ahead of the issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, what before I go get on my soapbox and talk about this. I do want to get your guys' thoughts and how you felt about it and whether you thought the author's note was valuable. It it felt, like I said, it felt extraneous and a little bit weird, but I'll tell you why in just a moment. But what did you guys think of all of this Kip and Tice's sex stuff? I, I enjoyed it. Sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it makes sense. And I think it's a good point to the story. I think they needed something to bring them together. They needed a they needed something of their own to work through, some sort of trial that the two of them are working through together to make their um, arranged marriage have some basis to right, it. Right, right. Give it an actual foundation. Yeah, like that. And because I mean, you kind of Kip talks a lot that he he loves her, 
not necessarily to her, but in his own thoughts because she's beautiful and it's very just a kind of a shallow-ish love. Um, and then he starts thanking his grandpa for arranging all of this and whatnot. But there's no, so little time when you read about arranged marriages, there's, they need some sort of foundation to build on and they need a goal to work towards. And that's what I think Brent did here. They have, and of course it's here, it's, it's important. If they don't consummate their marriage, it gets annulled and everything they've worked towards is mute. Like it's moot. It doesn't matter. Mute, moot. It's I all was the like, same. I knew I pronounced that wrong as soon as it came out. <laughs> so I think that it, it has val. It it's valid. It's a valid point that Brent purposely put in there. And yeah. I think it adds to their story. Okay. It also adds some comedy. I mean, unintentionally, not because of the, the issue itself is funny, but because of the, this, the things that they go through to try and hide the fact, some of the things they're doing, the, you know, uh, the the mighty give them crap all the time about him being, you know, being really loud doing these. Right. Have you ever watched the show Easy A where they, you know. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. They do this whole scene in the in a bedroom where they're making all these loud noise and everything. Like, for them, in order to keep the this marriage valid, you know, without it just being annulled, they're kind of pretending that everything's fine. Right. Which I would assume that a lot of people would do in this situation anyway. But there's, there's some really funny moments that also then kind of turn into these emotional moments a little bit like having to deal with that like oh yeah my friends are kind of laughing about this but it's not going it's not going as well so you you can kind of catch that little bit of weight that they're carrying reading through this i i zero familiarity with any with any of that at all and i remember coming in uh, one day we were doing a sound check and i said hey i'm gonna uh, let me read you this author's note because i just oh, finished that's or right yeah you did read that and i read the author's note that he has at the end of this and I was like, this was like, this is, this was weird. It was weird to read this, but it was important to the story. And like, this is, I think this is just one of the most interesting author's notes I've ever read. Um, and, and kind of reading his sound check and going, oh, okay, this is unique. And I, I am glad, I am very glad that he wrote that in there. Uh, and I hope that people will take the time to, I know some people, you know, you hit the last page and you're done and you're whatever. I would kind of hope that people would actually take the time to listen to it because this is a real thing. It is a real thing. It is a real thing. And uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about a little bit. So if you are not familiar with what we're talking about, go check out the author's note if you skipped past it or, or whatever. Um, he talks about vaginismus. And it's, you know, like I said already, he mentions this is a real thing. Real people go through it. Real people I know have gone how through it. poorly people are aware of it and deal with it. Like. Right. So, so this is something that I dealt with, um, if you don't mind me opening up a little bit. Uh, this is, like I said, something that my wife and I dealt with. We got married young. Uh, I was 22 and she was 21 and it took us three and a half years. Took Kip and Tysis a year, took us three and a half years to be able to consummate our marriage because she had a vaginismus condition that had actually, it was so severe that it had morphed into another Type it's a it's a whole thing. I won't get too much into the medical stuff about it, but it was so severe that it required surgery. Um, it required uh, physical therapy. It required all sorts of stuff that was um, incredibly difficult, especially for her individually, but for the marriage itself. Uh, anyway, and so I had gone through this, and um, and we always felt Sarah and I always felt like. Oh, and by the way, she, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing this necessarily this so publicly if she hadn't done it a million times before, like on blogs and stuff. So 
I think I'm covered there. But anyway, <laughs> um, it was just like in the book was it was uh, something that we had to work through. And by the end of it, uh, Kip even has a note um, or I, I have a note about something Kip said at the end of the book where he says, um, I will not leave or forsake you. Kip said, this is something we need to fix. It does weaken us, but someday it will be a source of our strength. And this is something that Sarah and I have talked about a lot about how this is, it was incredibly difficult for us to go through, but because we did, it led to a lot greater understanding of each other than we might have achieved otherwise. And so would we rather have not gone through it? Maybe, <laughs> but, but we did. And you gain something from that, mm -hmm. right? When I was reading this, I was, I, I, I was flabbergasted. I was blown away with every passing scene where this came up that Brent didn't just include it, but he nailed it. He got everything as far as um, as far as what Tysus goes through, what Kip goes through, how they talk to each other about it, the frustrations, the techniques, uh, you know, how they talk around it, how they're trying to fix things, the the amount of time, you know, where things happen in the story. He nailed everything. It was as though he had read some diary that I never wrote <laughs> and wrote the story. And, uh, and so I was, I was absolutely shocked it, right down to the techniques that she uses to finally overcome it. And, you know, uh, the, the chirurgeon that she works with and all that stuff. Um, you know, those are real things that people have to go through. Uh, and so I, you know, I emailed him and I was like, Brent, you know, WTF, how, how'd you do that? You know? And, <laughs> and he wrote back and had some interesting things to say. And maybe, you know, maybe I'll share a couple of those, but so for me coming at it from that perspective, I, loved that aspect of this book where a lot of other people might have been put off by it. Uh, but if you were put off by it, I would just encourage you to examine why. Is it because it was icky sex stuff? Is it because you thought he dwelt on it too much? Uh, is it because you thought, oh, well, okay, maybe that happens to, you know, a few random people, but that, you know, it's, it's not that big. Of a thing. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. It's a, it's rare. It is not rare. This happens all the time. It may not be as severe as it was for me and my wife. It may not be as severe as it was for Kip and Tysis, but it happens all the time. And so if the sex stuff in this book makes you uncomfortable, take a hard look at why and make sure it's not for some reason that makes you an a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not, that's fine. You can still dislike it. That's fine. But don't be an a-hole. Um, anyway, this it, it gave me this gave me a lot uh, of perspective on what people talk about when they talk about representation. Mm -hmm. I still I don't think that I've come around to be quite as as woke as I think some people would like me to be on this subject, but it does give me an understanding of what people are talking about when they say that they appreciate representation uh, because, uh, like I say, it wasn't just like, oh that that seems familiar. It was that is exactly my life on the page. And it meant something to me. It really did. Mm -hmm. But there is an actual explanation for why he included this in the book. And so I wanted to, I, I won't read his entire email to me, but I, I asked him why you included it in the book because he doesn't really get much into that in the author's note. He kind of reiterates a few of the things from the author's note that, yeah, this was um, something that had happened to a, a couples that he knew who had gone through some you know, some of this stuff and, and a doctor who actually 
shamed a woman for not being as sexually active as the doctor thought she should have been in her youth. Get through maybe if you'd had sex before or, you know, try getting drunk, you know, providing absolutely useless bits of information because it's just not understood. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it, um, sorry, another aside. It took Sarah like six doctors before she could even get properly diagnosed. Doctors mm. don't even know what's going on. All they know is that it must be the woman's fault. Just awful, awful stuff. Anyway, but he mentions, so I asked him, why did you include this in the book? You know, it, it must have been important to you, but you know, something personal, what was it? And he actually says that um, it was partly because if you look at the story as it's written and where these characters are, um, you've got a young dude, and this is quoting Brent, a young dude is newly married to a beautiful young woman who he discovers isn't the ditz he'd first dismissed her as. Well, what, what's he actually going to be doing? He's going to be having sex all the time. He's going to be insufferable for everyone around him and for readers too. So he and they needed complications. It was a way of keeping two people apart that I'd never seen done and it felt raw. I liked that. And so in a way, what's funny is that people kind of complain that, uh, oh, Brent Weeks is obsessed with sex. He's a pervert or whatever. And apparently people on Reddit did call him a pervert. Like, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. People on the internet. We're, we're some of them, I suppose. But uh, but in a weird way, they're complaining about that. But if he hadn't done it and had remained true to like what the characters would be concerned about and what they'd be doing, there would have been a lot more sex in the book. Right? Mm -hmm. This is true. So, I don't know. Okay, I've talked a lot. I need you guys to talk so I can uh, <laughs> breathe a little bit. <laughs> Thoughts and feelings. Sorry, I just kind of laughed and had a thought. I'm like, I really hope that Reddit and conversations like that aren't what you know, are found to, you know, when the human race is long gone and they go back to try and figure us out or whatever, that uh, it's not those kind of Reddit discussions that are found, you know, they're oh not, they're not, they're not going to find the library of Congress and pull out, you know, <laughs> the great teachings of, of people and they're going to be like, exactly. oh no, Reddit user Kip Tan said, you know, or, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's pick on Kip Tan. That's a good one. Uh, it reminds I should me have him. thrown a Jafu under the bus. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, Kip Tan. Kip Tan. It's, I it, meant Jafu. <laughs> um, it reminds me of I'm I'm playing through Horizon Zero Dawn again, and it's post-apocalyptic, and you're finding all these little uh, audio excerpts from uh, you know people before the apocalypse, and they're always like hyper relevant uh -huh. to the situation. It's like, well, that's convenient. It tells you a lot more about the story every time you find one of those things, and it's never just somebody like, well. I took a really large dump today. <laughs> Felt great. So you open and you find a few of them that it's like some guy writing a fan fiction of something else. It's like, <laughs> okay, all right. I'll throw that out for the video game industry to use. Yeah. Useless things. Anyway, back anyway. to the book. <laughs> <laughs> and tangent okay. done. Kip and Tysis, uh, we've talked about their relationship. That's, I think it's good. Um, let's, can we hop to Tia? Yeah, yeah, bit? let's go, let's go over to Tia. We talked a little bit about it in our last episode about, uh, I said that that book is the checkpoint of where she starts, uh, she's made the decision and starts going dark. And we talked already, even in this episode a little bit, the working with Murder Sharp to capture Mauricia, this work as a double agent, she's now having to learn how to use peril by essentially torturing these people that are brought to her as test subjects and you know, slaves and people that are brought in, chained up, and they said, when they're dead, we'll bring you a new one. And she tries to go through and, and, you know, game the system a little bit like, well, maybe if I can keep them alive for a few, you know, more days, that means less people will die. But then eventually they're going to get, start questioning about why I'm not getting better. And it gets to the point where her morality is shifting and getting darker into the point of, you know what, it's, I can just, let's kill them quick, get it out, you know, get them out, get the next one in here. 
I can get better at this. And eventually, when I can stop all this, it'll make it all worth it. The ends will justify the means here. And anytime that conversation comes up, we all go, uh, maybe. It's, I know it's so difficult because sometimes you want to say, well, yeah, they kind of do. Uh, but do they? Oh, man. These, these so are pretty hard. bad means by which to be justifying. Like, and it quite frequently in fantasy and everything, the ends are the, or the means are the death of innocence. Right. And we go, okay. Because that's about as, about as far as you can go, like, on the spectrum of this is a bad thing to do for a good cause. Right. So it, it reminded me of, uh, of uh, the Bourne series mm -hmm. with, uh, what's his name? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yeah, where uh, he has to kill an innocent person to, to finish his training and to become a spy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so as far as, well, he, I mean, he's told he's guilty, but there's no trial or anything. And so he has to just murder a guy to prove that he's in. Um, and this one is, uh, yeah, very similar. Uh, she's trying to infiltrate something and they say, yeah, kill him. And then we know you're, well, it's not, this isn't proving so much as we just want to give you practice. Yeah, this is practice. Start to practice. And then as she gets, once she gets to a certain level as a thank you, as a gift to her, right. what's the gift that the order gives her? Put a peril tag on someone and we'll kill him for you as a reward. Okay. We have a good guy character who now can kill anybody they want to kill. And, but we're still just, you know, she still has that good guy mentality and, and she wants to do it right. So who does she pick? She picks, um, what's his name? Quentin. 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 Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, she picked Quentin who, what, what was his deal? Stephanie, you he remind me. He was the, the minor Luxia. He worked at the, in the libraries at the Chromaria. And we found out that he was the one that actually shot, um, what's the black Lucia. guard trainee? Lucia. Oh, that's right. He was that's aiming right. for Kip and she got in the way and she's the one that died. He was the one that actually killed her and he's been found out and has since been arrested and is going to be killed. On Orholm's glare. Um, for her murder. Right. And so he's the one that Tia figures he's going to die anyway in a horrific way. Maybe I can put this marker on him. He'll be killed maybe a little bit quicker so it's not so painful in her mind she's justifying that she's killing someone already slated to die and right. he's and in the conversation that he and tia have she can tell that he, he is very uh he's full of remorse like this wasn't what he was planning he's more a victim of circumstance than than an act of choice there somewhat uh so we get this whole thing like ah here's tia's out here's her safe like this guy, he's guilty because he did something wrong, but he's not that bad of a guy. So we can give him an out by killing him early in a kinder way. And Tia doesn't have to kill an innocent. This is great. This is a really nice, easy way out to fix this. And then Brent says no. And she untags him. Um, and she does that out of what? A, another crisis of conscience? For, for, you know, she doesn't want to directly cause Quentin's death or something. I can't remember why she untagged him. I cannot, I can't remember the, the reasoning, the, the, the reasoning either, but I remember that she, she decides to go and untag him. Um, leads us to a great scene on Orhalem's glare. Okay. Talk about that. Uh, <laughs> that is, was gruesome, right? Yeah. This is, this is a shift from it. It's Tia. We use Tia's point of view and her uh, connection with Quentin to move us into a, a great sequence with Karis okay, as so, the yeah, white. That's right. So now Karis is the white, and she has to oversee the execution of... Um, so it's supposed to be Quentin and this high Luxiet 
who is found to have uh, ordered Quentin to kill Kip. Right? Is this where we find out that the Luxiets are super corrupt? The Chromaria mm-hmm. is is utterly corrupt. I just can't remember offhand if he's he's if not he, he's not he's, he's not, not on or he's not slated to die. He's just in the audience. Oh, that's right. That's and it's, right. It's and a reversal. Yeah, they make. There's a whole they bunch of stuff it. that comes out, and all of a sudden he's like, "Wait, wait!" And then she's like, "Haha, you're the one that's actually <laughs> the evil person." You know, here. you you really should have written this, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> Some stuff happens, and ha, yes, this is what happens. Yeah. Uh, I okay. So yada yada yada. I I I just want to dwell a little bit on Orhalem's glare because what a terrible way it would be to go. There there are some moments if I uh, I dip back into Night Angel a little bit. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to spoil anything about Night Angel, but I will say there are some pretty gruesome methods of torture <laughs> and and death devised in that one, but this might take the cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so uh, to describe Orhalem's glare, uh the Chromaria or Little Jasper, is that what the island? Big I think Jasper. On... There's Little Jasper and Big Jasper. Aren't they're they? Little... They're on Little Jasper, though, right? Where yeah, because that's where the towers is. are. Yeah, the, the towers are on Little Jasper. There are thousands of mirrors all around Little Jasper and uh, kind of on, on these towers, and they can all be turned, especially at noon, when the sun is high overhead, they can be turned and focused into a single beam that then goes to a, a certain place, and they call it Orhalem's Glare, and that's how they execute the their worst criminals. And, and you have two choices on Orhalem's glare. If you're oh, a draft, you can, yeah, if you're a drafter. You can either try and draft so much that you would that you explode, or try and like control, like keep from drafting, keep from drafting, and cook to death. Like, so do you want to burn to death slowly or burst your your own body? Oh, yeah, that's. I, it's so gross. <laughs> <laughs> He's come up with some awful stuff, but that one might be the worst. I hadn't even remembered the whole drafting part. I was just picturing myself doing the whole cooking to death thing because it, it takes what, like a minute or something for them to die. Yeah, it's it's a it's as hot and as it is, it is still a slower process than you would want it to be. Right. Anyway, for all of you that have ever taken a magnifying glass to an ant. Now you know. I, I've never done that. Did you guys ever do that when you were kids? I, I never, could never did. I, never... I could never get the focus well enough to keep <laughs> an ant from moving. Ryan tried and right? failed is what he's saying. <laughs> so what you're saying is that you're you're an aborted serial killer because you didn't have the skills for it. <laughs> I was terrible at it. No, I burnt, like, I'd, I when I first learned about it, I'd, like, burn holes into papers, but I, I never really went after animals. I've never been that that person. I always always You were bothered. never Zyman. Yeah. I... Who we'll have to talk to, and we will in just a moment. But anyway, um, all right. So it, that's... In my mind, with Brent Weeks as an author, when we talk about Night Angel to this, I think his dealing with sex in his books improved dramatically with the shift from Night Angel into Lightbringer. Um, Again, that's just my opinion. Um, And so people can still complain about that, but I think he did great with that. The violence, I think he also matured a lot in his depictions of violence, his use of violence in the books. Uh, but this one is just, it's the one that stood out to me is, you are demented, sir. <laughs> and this is coming right after he hot rotted a guy's eye out in the previous <laughs> right, book. Exactly. Like, it's rough there. If you ever want a visual for what Orhalem's Glare looks like, like something like that, uh, in the edge of uh, the California-Nevada border, there's a solar farm out there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It all reflects up there. And if you've ever been there when it's actually going on and you see all these beams hitting this one thing and, and the steam that it creates, everything here. It is, yeah. It's, it. I can't imagine 
being on the receiving end of that like it's it's a it's a terrifying thing to realize how much power there is in sunlight you can't see you should post that somewhere put it on uh, on reddit or discord or something find a You're link out. to that yeah that'd be good or maybe we'll actually do show notes <laughs> you know how podcasts do those yeah i don't know sounds like a lot of work nah, nah. nah. uh <laughs> anyway okay so our home's glare let's leave that behind we mentioned Karis. she's our pov for this scene our point of view character mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we should actually talk about some Kara stuff throughout this book and, and what she's going through. So um, what did you just mention with Karis um, just a moment ago? What was it? Oh, it was Zyman. That's what I wanted oh, to Karis talk and about. Zyman. Karis and Zyman. Because woof. Yeah. Yikes. Yeesh. How many other words can we throw out there? I don't know. I don't know why incest is a thing for people out there, but apparently what do you mean? it is. Why, why it's a thing? Like just... How people are attracted to their yeah mom. like oh the the whole uh, if what, what? Shakespeare can do it <laughs> Shakespeare I don't think Shakespeare wrote incest porn like I, that's, what is this I'm, I'm, no, I'm not saying I was this like is. I don't feel like this is <laughs> no but. no I'm just saying like but it's a it's a thing oh yeah like, yeah, yeah yeah on yeah. the internet it's a thing it's a thing yeah and it's it, it, why is it stop a thing it. stop it <laughs> so those are the people that I'm thinking are looking at Simon going. Oh, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, totally. Get it? Like, no! No, stop it. She's um, your mother. So She's your mother. No but, matter how estranged, she's your mother. Stop. But, 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 but. Zyman. So in the book, it's not It's not quite that. It's not like, ooh, I got a hot mom, right? It's not that. It's um, Zyman seeks power and influence and uh, manipulation of those around him. And he is, is using that tactic or at least something coming close to it it's not love it's it's not love motivated it is 100 percent the power power motivated yeah because he's incapable of any human emotion yes if there's a sociopath in this thing we will be say sociopaths or i think you argue for psychopath psychopaths they don't feel empathy right whatever one it is something he's that um but karis doesn't know that and she of course being a mother wants to be a mother and treat him as well as she can you know she feels feels guilty for leaving him behind for you know as she sees it dumping him on these people who she now hears incorrectly were awful to him and Mm -hmm. you know these people abused me and did terrible things to me mother how could you leave me with them and so she feels terrible and he's using that um and i think it's just heartbreaking and devastating to watch that relationship uh, unfold i don't know Maybe watching Karis's side of that relationship is a little heartbreaking of because of what she's desired and what she's already gone through. We already know that Zyman is the product of not a loving relationship with Gavin, the actual Gavin. Right. Um, the real Gavin, older brother Gavin, is Zyman's father. And that was not, that was a, a stupid night on her part kind of thing. That it was questionably... Was it was it rape Maybe. or borderline rape or it's, something? It's, it's definitely borderline because she went. They she were went both all consenting, drunk and everything. Like. But she was not happy about right, it. Right, it right. was not a. It was not a consent. A one hundred percent consensual thing. Which is why she hid him and everything, and and gave him away to be raised by someone else. But it. So I think it's hard on her side, especially after the relationship that she's been building with Kip, and how Kip has seen her as a mother figure, and she sees what she should have with her own son 
And I think it's hard, especially as a mother, realizing that your own, that you feel something more for someone else's child than you do for your own. Mm. And I think that that's what's heartbreaking with Karis. Simon, I could care less about because <laughs> he is. He's he's a piece of garbage. Yeah, he is. There's nothing saving about him. And that's uh, and that's another thing uh, going back to the sorry, going back to the vaginismus issue where just because you don't see it in your life doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like there are Zymons out there. Mm-hmm. They exist. And there's nothing you can do except run away. Yeah. You, you have to stay as far away from that kind of thing as you can. Don't try and save a Zymon. We'll yeah. tell you how to deal with a Zymon later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, something about Orholm's glare. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, but there's there's a passage um, and it's it's a very obvious wink and nudge to the reader, but to Karis, it's, uh, you know, it kind of shows where she's at with him. Uh, this is back in chapter six where he's he's begging with her, pleading with her for reasons that don't really matter. Um, but she, he says, mother, mother, please. And it was as if he were speaking to her from far away. She thought she, she'd thought she knew Devin and Karen Ash, the people that she left him with. They'd seemed to be such good people, but then the real monsters had an uncanny ability to hide right in plain sight, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so yeah, if you find out if, and it, but it's hard when it's if it's somebody close to you who exhibits Zymonish tendencies, it's hard to know right away because we want to assume the best in people and we want to be kind to them, especially when there's somebody who, you know, has family ties or is a longtime friend or something. We we want to be a good person, mm-hmm. right? But uh, anyway, Karis, so Karis eventually comes to understand that he is in fact one of those monsters um, hiding in plain sight. In a very difficult scene. Okay, um, yeah, describe the scene. So now we're skipping to the end of the book. Yeah, we're getting towards, we're towards the end of the book. Um, there are some blackguards they've had to, they've been uh, in a battle and uh, Gavin Grayling, who we have, he's been kind of a minor character that's been in and out in, in interaction with Karis. He's been a blackguard bodyguard mm-hmm. for her. Right. Promoted um, young because of the thinning of the ranks and all of that. Yeah. Well, he's the one that saves Gavin after he throws yes. Anna, on Anna, whatever her name is, out, off out the, of the window. Out That's of the right. window. It's him and his brother that cover for him. Right. Yes. Rather adamantly. So we've got him, and he's broken the halo, and he needs to be freed. And so she goes to, she she says, basically, I'll go get Simon, you know, I'll go get the prism so that we can do it, because he's become so a prism elect. So we can free you. So that we can free you. And he says, no, he's a monster. Uh, I have... We have watched him. When he's freed people, he'll stab women in the stomach. He'll do things which, if you if you're not familiar with it, being stabbed in the stomach is one of the worst ways to go. It is a very long, drawn out, and painful, painful process. Shot, stabbed, anything in the stomach. It terrible not, people. Not use what you that. want. Yeah. Anyway, um, but they basically start lifting off, list, lifting off, listing off these different things that Zyman has done and what a monster he is, which helps Karis. Free herself, free of herself him. of that that relationship a little bit. And say, no, he, that's right. It's okay that as a mother, I'm not feeling this loving connection to him because of this. And then she frees Gavin and actually kills him herself, and does that, which is again, it's it, it's a devastating scene. It's hard. It's you had to kill a friend type thing. Um, in something that, quite frankly, one of the things that makes it so difficult is also the fact that she is in that moment having a crisis of faith, saying she's learning so much about the Cromeria and how this is a lot of this is bull. Why, why do we it's, need to do this? And she's starting to, you know, you start to see the color whites, the uh, logic 
right. ro- kind of rolling or, back here. Or why Gavin is uh, an, atheist, an atheist, right? Because he went through all of this before book one ever started, and he just starts as an atheist, and now we get to see her go through almost the exact same thing in real time. Yeah, I, I love it. I love her arc in this book. Yeah, how do you look at someone who's offering the the greatest religious sacrifice that they make in this you know in this world here? I'm sacrificing my life because my halos have broken. Um, to well, some... and he also his halos are broken because he's been out looking for Gavin. Yeah, like he's been he's been pushing himself to the limit looking for her husband. Right. Not necessarily right, right, on right. her orders anymore, but that. But for her. For her. Yeah. So um, she's now free of the of the spell of Zyman, right? Is she, mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be his mother, but you know, you are no <laughs> son of mine, or whatever. Um, and I think that's about where we leave Karis. Is there any any other Karis related things that we need to talk about by the end of this book? Because I want to talk about Tia, and I think we're we're coming up on the limit of our time here, and we might be able to kind of talk about everything we want to in just this one episode. So maybe we'll leave it here uh but i do want to talk about tia ryan you're just checking real quick to see if there's any other caris things we want to talk about somebody's going to yell at us i'm sure the only other thing that i can think of off the hand and off this quick uh, review is uh, remember that she has sent tia to infiltrate the order that that it was on her orders that tia is yep. doing a lot of these things and she's basically endorsing all the actions that she's doing um and then uh, she discovers because we're going into Tia, I think this is valuable. Yeah. Um, Tia, on her mission, on one of her missions, discovers that Iron Fist is still alive. Right. And, and Iron Fist, through this process, be, uh, is named King of Perea. Uh, and He's not there yet. Well, yeah, we're not there yet. He is, it is mentioned that he is there. It is. He's there. He hasn't been named King yet. It is. He has. Okay. I okay. believe you. I believe you. But. It becomes a much bigger plot point in, in book five. In book five, yeah. But it is there um, because Andros tells her that he's done that in this book because Andros is already plotting um, how he's going to have to deal with it. Okay, this. well, well but, all right, let's back up. Now let's stop <laughs> so, arguing about that and back up to what Tia does to Iron Fist. So Tia is sent by both, both by the groups Order and Karis to kill the Nukaba and to kill. Um, the advisor or spy mistress or spy mistress yeah, basically she has two missions there that both kind of counteract one another uh, there but as she's there she she works her way in to be able to go to the she goes with an ambassador actually doesn't she yeah she, she has some interesting conversations with him that we won't get into but i liked that character quite a bit for somebody who just pops in and out yeah go in there they have those conversations she goes up to uh she causes the death of the advisor um, through a heart attack based on this really ridiculous print. Like they've, they go into the courtyard and make some really big statements basically. And the, they try and frame it that her blood pressure has gotten so high that oh, her right. heart bursts basically. Yeah. She does that and then goes up and uh, has to kill uh, Irene Malargos who has her brother Iron Fist chained to the wall with a, iron mask on basically that he can't turn or do anything else so he's chained to the wall and she has to go kill her and when she sees it it's iron fist and then he realizes that he figures out that it's tia behind him yeah uh and she she has to hold iron fist in place while he rips chains off the wall like she uses peril to hold him in place like to 
numb his legs or I think or something like that. Right. And so she she's having a battle within herself whether she's going to go through with this. He's begging her not to kill his sister. Yeah. Um and but she's under orders and she has to maintain her cover and you know she wants to do this for Iron Fist Street or she wants to not do this for the sake of Iron Fist, but she has to maintain her cover and we've spent this entire book as we detailed breaking down her barriers, her moral barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been killing slaves all book long. And now she gets to this point where, okay, well, I've, you know, I've done, I've done how many awful, horrible, terrible things to maintain my cover and to il- infiltrate this organization. I can't stop now, even though this is, you know, I, I don't know that it's any worse, but it's certainly more personal for her her friend iron fist is asking her not to do this uh and yet she decides to do it anyway and what does she do she drowns the new kaba or she something? puts her she's in the the tub free kind of paralyzes her and slits her wrist so that it bleeds so it looks like, it a, looks suicide. like a suicide yeah brutal absolutely brutal uh tia has had a oh, just Which, a heartbreaking dark journey right what have we tm <laughs> tm dark yes. journey tm we go through, so you take that moment, take all the, the slaves that she's killed and her own personal feelings about slavery and everything there, all these these things here. Deal with all that and then come back to the end of this book. She goes to Karis, um, finds out that the, she's been given another assignment. Uh, she has to kill Gavin when he finishes this his is, mission. Uh, this is the broken eye telling her, giving her this mission. We always have to specify. The order. She's working yeah. for- By the way, Grim Woody, since we're going, you know, oh, since yeah, we forgot since we to really talk about over that, that, is the uh, order, the, the old man of the desert. Yeah. He assigned, he sends Gavin to kill Orhalem. This is the very, very end of the book, basically. He sends him off to do that and then sends Tia after him to kill him when he finishes the job. Right. That's what it's supposed to be. And Tia feels an obligation to go tell Karis that this is, oh, um, your husband's alive, basically. Right. And then finds out that Karis is having a crisis of faith. And she's like, you have put me through. I've had to do all these things. And now, and now you feel like you have the the privilege of going through a crisis of faith. How dare you? Yeah, gets all pissed off. Doesn't decides not to tell her at first. It's really interesting to me that Tia gets to that point where she is so frustrated and so broken by what she's had to do by the by the betrayal of trust of those that have assigned her to do this sort of thing. Uh, she is right on the edge that she could become a villain. She could easily decide to turn. Well, say, she even has those conversations within herself as to at what moment does she just become a member of the order? Mm-hmm. At what moment is that? What does she have to do that that her mentality is going to flip? So. Ugh, man, I really like her character. I do too. She's And the thing is, she has changed much. You already talked about it towards the beginning about how this is why uh, Kip and Tysis work, but Kip and Tia don't, especially at this at the end of this path. Like where, how far she's gone this way, and how far Kip's gone another way. Like I, I, I cannot see how their paths would have worked now. You know, following this storyline. Right, Kip is sort of uncorruptible, uh, in the way that Tia is proving quite corruptible. Yeah. Um. Anyway, but we we'll wrap up Tia's storyline. Everybody's storyline, I suppose, <laughs> in in book five. I kind of feel like I mentioned earlier we've gotten to a lot of what we probably wanted mm-hmm. to talk about. So I think we'll cut it off. It, it's a long, it's a long episode for book four. So there you go. How's that as a compromise? It's a slightly <laughs> long episode. We're just going to keep it to one episode for book four. I hope people are okay with that. 
We'll answer. There was a Reddit question that we needed to answer is, do we think Todd would have oh, that's cried? Right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Armor Hyde asks, on a scale of one to 10, how hard do you guys think Todd would have cried at the end of Blood Mirror? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Um, when when you and Todd, it's going back to the legendary um, Oathbringer part five episode yeah. when you and Todd kind of opened up and, and there, there were tears and there was sharing and there was caring and there, you know, like... Uh, was the Care Bears with the love shooting out of your chests and everything. Yes. Um, and then on this episode, this is the the time when I finally have like a personal experience to share. And none of that. I'm just like, this is what happened. I'm such a friggin' robot. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, Can't, you, you, do you have any emotions? No, I have no emotions. What am I, Zyman? I don't know. Let's go on <laughs> with this. Um, all right. So we feel like we're good on, on uh, book four then. Okay. We'll call it there. Thanks for listening, everybody. Come back for The Burning White because yeah, that is going to be an interesting discussion. Ryan and I tried to talk about The Burning White without spoiling anything. Turns out that's impossible. Not done well. Yeah, Not exactly. even remotely. Yeah, you can't. So I, I it, there are a few episodes that I can point to. That one, episode 151, there are episodes that I would love to get a mulligan on. And our burning white discussion, honestly, is one of them. I think we, we could have done it better. I, I don't know how, but I'm really excited to talk, to talk about it with full spoilers because there's so much to talk about. It has proven exactly what I thought it would prove to be, which is an incredibly divisive book. Um, even on our Discord server, where you have a ton of huge fans of epic fantasy, there are a bunch of burning white haters. And I want to discuss why that is. There are also a bunch of lovers of the Burning White, and uh, I want to talk about why they love it, why people hate it. I, I think we can have a whole thought piece on uh, the the e whether it's easier to defend something you love or kill something you hate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, oh man, I'm excited for that discussion. That's got to be two. That's got to be two episodes, I'm sure. So. Uh, hopefully you stick around for that thanks for listening to this one patreon.com slash legendarium if you want to support the show we so much appreciate those who do so uh, and join the conversation reddit.com or sorry thelegendarium.reddit.com is where you can do that or join the discord if you want to chat live with us and uh, we will see you all next time